You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 574 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 8th. 2023. And in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about Times Person of the Year. What is the Hegelian dialectic? What to do with pro-choice and pro-abortion folks starting to distinguish themselves from one another? And also, we'll say a word or two more about the January 6 tapes that have been released and have been given to Tucker Carlson in particular for him to peruse and see what actually happened on that fateful day when democracy was threatened most of all here in the United States. But first, before we get into any of that, I am going to switch gears a little bit. We've been reading through Exodus, but we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about fasting And the reason for that is that tonight being Wednesday night and youth group and March 8th, I am on the schedule to give a 15-minute presentation to our youth group about fasting and more specifically, what is a healthy approach to practice of fasting. And so in preparing for this evening's talk, I have looked up Isaiah 58. And I might not just stick to talking about a healthy approach from a physical standpoint. That might be more of the angle that's intended. I'm not sure, but I'm interpreting healthy here to mean both physical and spiritual. And so let's talk a bit about the spiritual side of this question. What is a healthy practice of fasting? What is a healthy approach to fasting? In Isaiah 58, we see much said about true and false fasting, fasting that God is pleased by and fasting that he's not pleased by. And so we're going to read Isaiah 58, starting from the top in verse one, cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to Yahweh? Is not this the fast that I choose, 
to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of Yahweh shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and Yahweh will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And Yahweh will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of Yahweh honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in Yahweh, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So there we have it, right? There we have this, and amen. Amen. And as I will relate this to the topic of Hegelian dialectic here in a moment, as I understand it, which somebody please come forward and correct my misunderstanding, educate me if I am misunderstanding, which is very possible. I am by no means an expert on the Hegelian dialectic. I'm just trying to grasp it a little bit. But you have the heading for this whole chapter of Isaiah titled True and False Fasting, which is to say that true fasting is not some compromise between the kind of fasting that God desires and the kind of fasting that he is seeing. It's not some kind of a compromise where we negotiate back and forth, we haggle, we haggle, right? you know, we, we don't sit there and barter with God. And we don't say, okay, well, maybe the truth is somewhere in between what God wants and what we want. No, there's true fasting that God is pleased by, and there's false fasting that he is not pleased by. He's not impressed by. It's not motivated by a desire to please him. And in between true and false fasting is just more false fasting. It's either true fasting or it's not true fasting. The law of non-contradiction. This is a binary option. There is true fasting and there is false fasting. Now, what could be is that our understanding of what God desires in fasting is something that can grow and mature, and we can come into a better understanding by realizing, okay, it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this, but it is this. But this is to say that fasting is not just, in God's eyes, in God's word, 
fasting is not just, hey, don't eat and don't drink for a little bit. Fasting happens outside of the Bible. It happens outside of the Christian faith. But if we're talking true fasting, fasting that God is pleased by and that he desires, if we are going to fast, it is as Isaiah 58 says, starting in verse 6, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover him. And this is not talking about nudists, people who choose to be naked, who choose to flaunt their bodies, who choose to parade in a exhibitionist fashion. This is talking about people who don't have suitable clothing. They don't have proper clothing. And so you're going to get proper clothing for them. That's what it means for you to clothe the naked. See also feeding the hungry. Feeding the hungry is not you finding people who just decide to starve themselves because again, fashion or what have you. And it's really not like for purely physical reasons to go and find people who do intermittent fasting, which is something people will do for their physical health. It's not just you going and finding people who are on a diet and saying, hey, you need to eat a cheeseburger. You're looking a little bit skinny here. No, this is talking about people who don't have sufficient food. They don't have suitable food, particularly when they're are hard economic times. Maybe food is scarce and expensive and good quality food is hard for them to get because they don't have the means. You find those people and give them a cheeseburger or what have you, what, what's available, what would be good for them. For those who don't have a home, let's say the economy is not doing so hot and more of your nation's people than perhaps ever find buying a home to be unaffordable. Maybe what you do is not just go find the person who likes to go backpacking and hitchhiking across America and you say, okay, hey, you really should have a house and you should come in here. No, no. If they're out there backpacking in the wilderness and that's their choice, leave them to it. Okay. That's not your circus. Those are not your monkeys. Let them do what they're going to do. But if they're homeless because the rent is too high, mortgage rates are unaffordable, the value of homes has gone up and up and up and up and up because our government just keeps on printing money, maybe then you say, okay, listen, here's a, a family that does not have a home right now. They're living in their van and I have an extra house. I'm going to rent my house my extra house to them, or I'm going to rent a wing of the house to them at an affordable rate, right? That's what this is talking about. But it's so interesting because none of that is what we typically associate with fasting, I don't think. And yet that's what God says is true fasting. That's the kind of fasting that he desires, is that you would fast, if you will, you would deny yourself, you would practice self-restraint towards the end of honoring God first and foremost, loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind first and foremost, 
and therefore, consequently, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Those who are in dire straits, you don't just tell them, be warmed and filled. And you don't act like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You don't act like those who pass by on the other side because they're on their way to do holy things. You don't act like the Pharisee in the temple who raised his voice to heaven and said, thank you, God, that I'm not like this sinner over here, this tax collector over here. I thank you, God, that I'm not like him. Now, fasting, true fasting that is spiritually healthy is purposeful. And the purpose of true fasting is, first and foremost, to please God. And then subsequently, if the fast is towards the end of pleasing God and serving God and obeying God and honoring God and loving God, then subsequently, what you're going to do with that newfound willpower and ability to deny yourself is you're going to take the extra that you now realize you have that you maybe have been hoarding, and you're going to be generous with it, and you're going to share it with those who are in need. That is what true fasting actually is about. If I find that I am well-fed, and I have plenty to eat, and I see my brother doesn't have anything to eat. He didn't have any money to buy himself some lunch today. Put aside for a moment, in our day, all the concern about enabling bad behavior. Yes, I get that. And I'm not talking about us just putting people on the rolls and just giving charity in a way that incentivizes people being lazy. But I am talking about loosing the bonds of wickedness undoing the straps of the yoke. That, that is what Isaiah is talking about. That's what he is saying is the fast that God chooses. Not fasting towards the end of competitive virtue signaling. And this is what, when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is getting at. Matthew 6, starting in 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. This is virtue signaling. In fact, this is virtue signaling as, as a competitive sport, as a, <laughs> hey, I can be more gloomy than you can. I am fasting even harder than you are. That means I'm holier than you are. And on the other end of this fast that I want you to know, I am going longer and harder and farther with than you are, I am going to score so many points. Man, oh man, it's going to be great. No, that's not the kind of fasting that God desires. That's not a healthy approach to fasting. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. If our goal is to please God with our fasting, it will go a long ways towards preventing us from having an unhealthy approach to fasting. And what do I mean by that? It would be spiritually unhealthy for us to do the opposite of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, 16 through 18. Also, Isaiah 58, to do the opposite, where it becomes just an expression of selfish ambition and vain conceit. I think when 
it becomes competitive. You start measuring your fasting against other people's fasting. And that's when you have people who push their fasting past a healthy point physically as well. But I think it starts in an unhealthy place spiritually, mentally, emotionally, socially. Then subsequently, it's unhealthy in a physical sense because they're doing without food and water, for instance, longer than is necessary because they're trying to eke out just that little bit extra to one-up their peers and those who are observing. If you're trying to keep it somewhat private, secret, like Jesus says, then actually you're going to reach that point where it would start to be obvious to people that you're fasting, and then you're going to probably conclude your fast at that point. Which is to say, too, you're going to step up to fasting gradually over time. How much fasting can I do in a quiet way, in a private, secret way that only God is going to know and recognize and reward? When you very first start out fasting, that's going to be at a very low level. You're not going to fast for long. It might just be you're going to skip a meal or you're not going to eat anything today, but you will eat something tomorrow morning. Or you're going to have your last meal last night and you're going to have your first meal of today tonight. You'll break your fast this evening before you go to bed. That's a possibility. But you're going to do it in a way that only you and God know. And if it starts to get to be where people are like, hey, are you, are you feeling okay? Are you all right? That's when you know, hey, I should probably ease off and go grab something to eat and make sure that I'm drinking plenty of fluids. I would say also, if you're doing physical work and that physical work is good for you to be doing, don't be fasting when you're supposed to be working and doing manual labor, intensive labor, because that's when you might have an accident or you might injure yourself or somebody else. But if you keep the objective at the fore of your mind that fasting is to the end of breaking bad habits, reforming bad attitudes in yourself towards those who are needy, those who are being oppressed, that they would go free, verse 6 in Isaiah 58, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, then I think you won't be fasting when you could be working and you'll be asking yourself regularly, constantly through your fast, can I do more good by eating something right now so that I have the energy to maintain the work that I need to do in order to get this person some proper clothing or some proper housing or to get them something to eat? You have to keep that in mind as you're going along. Now, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an illustration of sorts for what I mean here in a video game analogy of all things. Hear me out. So my son, Daniel, loves a certain game for the computer. It's also available on Xbox as well, but he's primarily played it on the computer. And it's called The Hunter Call of the Wild. It's a hunting game, very realistic uh, hunting simulator. You track these animals and you've got to put on scent blocker and you've got to pay attention to wind direction. And you've got various times of day where 
Various animals might either be bedded down or they might be grazing or they might be getting themselves some water or what have you. And you go out there with various firearms and bows and things like that. And you trudge around the mountains or the prairies or the woods or what have you. And you take these animals and you've got to have proper shot placement and all the rest. And if you don't, well, then you're not going to get the animal or you're not going to get a very good rating, right? You get more points if you take a good clean shot with the proper caliber of bullet and you drop that animal as quick as possible. A double lung and heart shot, that's a great, great shot to take on any animal. That's going to drop them very, very quickly, if not immediately. But one of the things that's in the mix here when you're playing this game is the sound that you make as you are walking around. And depending on what you're walking through, if you're walking through thick brush or a tree infested area, you will make more noise if you are traveling quickly. If you're running, you will make more noise versus if you're crouched and sneaking, or if you're on your belly and you're just crawling forward slowly. And what you'll find is as you're, and I'm, I'm finding this out because I'm playing at Daniel's request, what you'll find is that as you are walking through the landscape, every now and then you don't see anything, but you'll hear a warning call from some animal because they saw you or they heard you or they smelled you and they give a warning call to each other because, hey, something's up, right? Something, some predator is about, some man is trudging around with a gun. Maybe we should hightail it, guys. And when you get that warning call, you can look in the direction that it's coming from. You'll have a little directional indicator that pops up on the screen so you can look in that direction. And if you get noticed, what you should do is you should drop to your belly Make sure you've got scent blocker on if you haven't already and stay very still. If you don't want to spook the animal, if you don't care about spooking the animal, then carry on, right? You might not want that animal. Maybe they're too small or they're the wrong type. You got plenty of those here lately. You're pursuing something else, but even so, right? You don't necessarily want to spook that animal because that animal might spook other animals. And so what you do, if you don't want to be spooking the animals is you drop to your belly and you wait and you crawl forward to get a better look, get the binoculars out, zoom in, see if you can identify what it is, especially if you didn't see them before they saw you. Maybe they're hidden in the bushes and in the trees and it's going to take you a minute or two to locate them and you're going to have to maneuver into position to look around certain obstacles. Then you'll see Oh, yeah, that looks like a big elk, or that looks like a nice-sized mountain goat, or that looks like a buffalo I would want to mount on my wall, or whatever. Now, how this relates to fasting, I think, is a spiritually healthy, and therefore subsequently physically healthy approach to fasting will see us paying attention to whether anybody is noticing our fast. If they are noticing our fast, then maybe just stop, right? Stop, hold position, and maybe even stop fasting. 
Stop fasting, get a little bit, pick it up again somewhere down the road, but slow it down. If you are being noticed enough that people say, oh, you look like you're not feeling so well today. Are you doing okay? You're looking a bit gloomy. Well, then you're not being careful enough about it. Don't disfigure your face. When you fast, anoint your head, which is to say, put on some oils so that you've got not just clean skin and hair, but also you you are going to look healthy and vibrant. Don't be gloomy. Smile, okay? Don't put on airs. Because what happens if everybody's paying attention to how hard you're fasting or whatever the correct terminology would be? Well, now you're going to be preoccupied with that and maybe you're going to lean into it because maybe they're going to praise you and they're going to say, hey, that's really great. That's really fantastic. And if you get sidetracked by that, what are you not paying attention to anymore? You're not paying attention to what is God going to be pleased by here? Am I seeking the approval of man or am I seeking the approval of God? Paul says in Galatians, if I were seeking the approval of men, I would no longer be a servant of Christ. So we have to keep that in mind if we're going to have a healthy approach to fasting. Now, moving on, let's talk just briefly about Karl von Clausewitz. Karl Philipp Gottfried or Gottlieb von Clausewitz was a Prussian general and military theorist who stressed the moral, in modern terms meaning psychological, and political aspects of waging war. His most notable work, Vom Krieg, on war, though unfinished at his death, is considered a seminal treatise on military strategy. Clausewitz was a realist in many different senses, including real politique, and while in some respects a romantic, he also drew heavily on the rationalist ideas of the European Enlightenment. Clausewitz's thinking is often described as Hegelian because of his dialectical method, but although he was probably personally acquainted with Hegel, there remains debate about whether Clausewitz was influenced by him. He stressed the dialectical interaction of diverse factors, noting how unexpected developments unfolding under the fog of war, i.e. in the face of incomplete, dubious, and often erroneous information and great fear, doubt, and excitement, call for rapid decisions by alert commanders. He saw history as a vital check on erudite abstractions that did not accord with experience. In contrast to the early work of Antoine-Henri Jomini, he argued that war could not be quantified or reduced to mapwork geometry and graphs. Clausewitz had many aphorisms, of which the most famous is, war is the continuation of policy with other means, often misquoted as by other means. Now, why do I bring up Karl von Clausewitz? In part because I was recently having a conversation with my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, about B.H. Liddell Hart and reading Scipio Africanus Greater Than Napoleon by B.H. Liddell Hart. Hart, I have heard Jocko Willink talk on his podcast. Hart, as Jocko says, is somebody to compare and contrast with Clausewitz. Clausewitz informed a lot of European strategic thinking particularly going into World War I. That's part of why World War I was such a quagmire because his book was incomplete. It was unfinished. It wasn't the full story. And insofar, it was an incomplete story that was being misapplied stubbornly again and again and again. The cost in human lives was very, very great. The cost in human lives was very great. 
B.H. Liddell Hart, serving in World War I, observed all of that and was appalled and disgusted by what he saw. The stubborn intractability of British commanders in particular, because he was a Brit. If I've misspoken in the past saying that he was an American, I apologize. Although what he articulates is arguably uh, more in line with an American military doctrine, I would say, historically. But Hart says, in strategy, the indirect approach, you shouldn't attack your enemy head on. You should scope out the enemy before you decide where to attack. And then you attack where your enemy is weak, where they're vulnerable, where they're not expecting. If you attack where they're expecting, you don't just say, well, we'll see what happens and then we'll deal with it as it comes up. We'll refine as it comes up because they're also doing that. Your enemy is also doing that if they're worth their salt. Gather your intel before you launch the attack. Have good reconnaissance. Have good scouting. Understand what they need in order to maintain their war effort and take that away from them, whether that's men, whether that's weapons, whether that's rest, whether that's supplies, whether that's fortifications, whether that's public support, political support, figure out what they need to sustain that war effort and take it away from them. Like pulling the plug on some piece of machinery that you want to stop. But in talking with JP here recently about Klauschwitz, he keyed in on this idea of Klauschwitz being perhaps Hegelian in his approach. And so then the question arose, well, what does that mean, right? What is Hegelianism? What is the Hegelian dialectic? Again, going back to Wikipedia, which I was just reading for Karl von Klauschwitz, the Hegelian dialectic under the entry for dialectic generally usually presented in a threefold manner, was stated by Henrik Moritz Kalebas as comprising three dialectical stages of development. A thesis giving rise to its reaction, an antithesis which contradicts or negates the thesis and the tension between the two being resolved by means of synthesis. Although this model is often named after Hegel, he never used that specific formulation. Hegel ascribed that terminology to Kant. Carrying on Kant's work, Fichte greatly elaborated on the synthesis model and popularized it. On the other hand, Hegel did use a three-valued logical model that is very similar to the antithesis model. But Hegel's most usual terms were abstract and negative concrete. Hegel used this writing model as a backbone to accompany his points in many of his works. The formula, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, does not explain why the thesis requires an antithesis. However, the formula, abstract, negative, concrete, suggests a flaw or perhaps an incompleteness in any initial thesis. It is too abstract and lacks the negative of trial, error, and experience. For Hegel, the concrete, the synthesis, the absolute, must always pass through the phase of the negative in the journey to completion, that is, mediation. This is the essence of what is popularly called Hegelian dialectics. So, in short, what we have here, generally, as I understand it, how many more qualifiers can I tack on? We have the idea that the truth is something of a compromise between 
your initial claim a contradictory counterclaim and the process of figuring out which of the two is more correct in which ways. The truth is some kind of a compromise. It's a, it's a negotiation of sorts. Now, there's a certain aspect in which I would agree that this is valid, and yet there are limitations. Because again, going back to Isaiah 58, we find that there's true and false fasting. Anything that is not true fasting that God is pleased by would be false fasting. Not that you have various degrees of true fasting. No, it's either true fasting or it's false fasting. These are binary options. It's not that you moderate the true fasting by bringing up the false fasting. Now, it could be, it could be the case that we understand more clearly what is and is not true fasting by presenting contrary examples. We do seem to have that in Isaiah 58, for instance. We see people in the first five verses being described as asking God, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And God answers, right? Yes, you're fasting, but that is not the kind of fasting that I am going to bless. It's not the fasting that I choose or prescribe or want. And actually, really, truly, you could say, if you were really going for true fasting, you wouldn't be asking the question after you've engaged in fasting that doesn't please God, because you would have sought the answer to what kind of fasting pleases God on the front end. Unless your goal was to just fast any way you please, because you're actually just seeking your own pleasure. You're not trying to seek God's pleasure. And that really is the point. Now, there's an, there's an aspect to this here with regards to fasting, wherein you should be pleased, but your pleasure is derived from what pleases God here. If you are delighting in the Sabbath for the right reasons, you're delighting in the Sabbath because the Sabbath pleases God, because God has commanded you to rest on the seventh day from all of your labors. So it's not a problem of whether you're pleased or not. And this goes back to Matthew 6. The problem is not whether you look gloomy enough like God is pleased when you look gloomy. He just loves your unhappy face. No, by all means, wash your face, anoint your head. But if your real reason, and this is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 6, if your real reason for fasting is to please God, you will be content. In fact, you'll be enthusiastic about fasting in secret in a private, quiet way that is not advertised. So also with prayer, if your real reason for praying is that God would hear your prayers and answer them, then you will be enthusiastic. You will be very happy to pray in secret where only God hears your prayers. This is not to say that it's a problem if anybody knows that you're fasting, if anybody knows that you're praying, if anybody knows that you've given generously. Again, going back to the first question, if you can please God more, if you can honor God more by praying or leading in prayer, your family or your small group or your youth group or your church, then do so. But practice as much as possible doing it privately so that you get acquainted with doing it for the right reasons. That's a healthy attitude towards this. Going back to the dialectic, 
I think looking at this, I can see how people get carried away one way or the other. We're either A, we're going to say absolute truth statements. This is what it is always, all the time, no matter what. No, I reject anything you have to say. And we rightly regard those people as closed-minded. Now, maybe their mind should be closed in some cases, but there's a difference between saying God's word is inerrant on the one hand, for instance, in a Christian context, and on the other hand saying my interpretation of God's word is inerrant. Now, if I come to the text and I'm being a Berean about it and I'm seeking God's approval and it turns out that I'm missing some things, I'm not catching, I'm not understanding, I forgot about this, or this isn't clear to me, the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. I say, well, this says this. And my brother or sister in Christ says, well, but what about this verse? How do I respond? Do I respond in a quarrelsome way? Or am I teachable? Or am I saying, oh, that's a good point. Hmm. Yeah, okay. In the way I'm reading this about the dialectical model of logic, dialogue, right? A Hegelian dialogue would be perhaps a good description, maybe, for what's going on there. Where it's not that the truth is modified, it's our comprehension of the truth may be improved and may grow and mature with that back and forth. I think that's very common sense. And we do see that. I've seen that. I would maintain that's an appropriate way of looking at it. But I don't, I I see that going too far as well, where you have people like in the good faith debates that I was talking about in our episode yesterday, people say, well, we need to have a conversation about education in America. And what they really mean is let's talk back and forth as though there really is no objective truth and goodness that applies to the public education system, for instance, whereby we would say we need to get out of there, Right. We agree that education is good and, okay, great debate. What? No. No, 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 no. So what that really was, more than a debate, that was more of a dialogue. It was a conversation. It really wasn't the debate, first and foremost. It was a scripted conversation, which is not necessarily the same thing. And and do we actually come out of that understanding the nature of the choice better? Or do we just know what these two, Jonathan Pennington and Jen Wilkins, have done with their families, with their children, who are now grown for the most part? The truth is the truth. And are they challenging each other to say, that's not true, what you just said, or that is false, what you just said, or this is true, and you haven't mentioned it. I don't see you factoring in this truth in your calculation. We've come to different conclusions. Is it possible that these are not all equally valid options just because you say one thing and I say the other? That's a potential danger in the dialectical approach to arriving at truth. Now, if you're having a dialogue with God's word or God is having a dialogue with you, that's a one-way street. You're not correcting his understanding. He's not becoming God He is God. He's not growing into that role, getting better every day. Man, God, you're really coming along. I really see a lot of growth in you. No, no. Our 
understanding of who God is, is what is growing, hopefully, by God's grace, as he reveals himself to us in his word and by his spirit, as he corrects us, as he teaches us, as he gives us the ability to understand. But I think that there's a real danger if we get our priorities mixed up, if our desire is first and foremost to seek the approval of man rather than the approval of God, a dialectical approach to understanding and knowing truth basically just becomes a negotiation. What can we agree on? Yeah, but there is such a thing as falsehood, right? If we reject categories like true and false, or we sublimate the categories of true and false to whatever we're all going to agree on, because unity has become the highest good. I say we've probably not factored in the sinfulness of man. Again, like we were reading in Exodus yesterday, the Ten Commandments presume that we need to be told thou shalt and thou shalt not. If we always acted the way that the Ten Commandments are telling us to act, we wouldn't need to be told to act in the way that the Ten Commandments are telling us to act and to not act. It's not to be assumed. People do bear false witness against their neighbor. Therefore, we need to be told, don't. People do murder. Therefore, we need to be told, don't. And there need to be consequences. The church has become, I think, very much corrupted by the idea that dialogue is the answer as though we have forgotten the sinfulness of man, as though perhaps we've intentionally forgotten and denied. So there's on the one hand, there's the possibility that this is just an honest mistake and it's a factor of immaturity. You have a lot of converts and not enough discipleship going on. We do have a lot of, let's say, for instance, in the Asbury case, people who are making a profession of faith, but are they bearing any fruit in keeping with repentance? If that's a novel concept, then I say we need to take care that we're not regarding unity with immature believers as the highest good, because in that case, we are going to do exactly what Paul says not to do in Galatians. We're going to seek the approval of man, and we're going to confuse the approval of man with a good testimony on the one hand and fellowship, unity of believers on the other hand. First and foremost, we need to be seeking God's approval. Unity needs to be on his terms. A good testimony, a good reputation with outsiders needs to be on his terms, first and foremost. Just a couple of thoughts there on this whole Hegelian dialectic topic. Now, moving on, I want to talk a little bit about something that was mentioned in Ben Shapiro's podcast. Last night, I was listening to his most recent one where he gets into some of the January 6th footage that Tucker Carlson at Fox News has been releasing. There's a lot of upset about Kevin McCarthy giving that footage, which he, as I understand, had every right, had every legal right. He had the authority to be able to do that. The people who are objecting actually don't have a leg to stand on, except they just don't like it. They just don't like that the truth is getting out there and that several very key pillars of the January 6th narrative are exploded now by the footage, by even just a little bit of footage that we've seen. But I'm listening to Ben Shapiro, and we'll talk more about the January 6th footage here in a minute. I'm listening to him, and he gets into a little bit of Ron DeSantis 
and how Ron DeSantis is being portrayed in the media. And you do have folks on the left saying already DeSantis is Hitler. DeSantis is Mussolini, right? He's literally Hitler. He's literally Mussolini. He's a fascist. He's a Nazi. He's a whatever. And I was listening to this while working just at the very tail end of working, finishing up work last night before dinner. And my oldest son, Josiah, was sitting in the office with me. And I hear Ben Shapiro talking about this. And I just hit pause real quick. And I'm like, you know what? I think we know. I think we know that DeSantis is not Hitler or Mussolini because Time Magazine hasn't declared him their person of the year yet. I think <laughs> we'll know. We'll know that he might be Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin. True story. All, all were at one time, a couple of them, a couple of times each, uh, all were by turn Time Magazine's person of the year. So if we haven't seen that yet, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Stalin shows up at least twice. If we haven't seen that yet, then I say DeSantis still has some work to do. But that's just it, right? That's that's what I'm driving at is it's so rich that the New York Times and Time Magazine have for all these years, and, and I'm talking decades, I'm talking the past century, been fawning over the greatest villains in world history. And then they malign, they turn right around and they malign Republicans and conservatives with impunity, with reckless abandon. And my question is, at a certain point, shouldn't we say it's probably a badge of honor if they don't like you? It's probably, you pr- take it as a compliment. If they don't like you, that's probably a good thing. And going back to the Hegelian dialectic business, I think where this comes into play with political debates is you do have folks like the National Association of Evangelicals, you know, I, going back to yesterday's episode, I played Ronald Reagan's evil empire speech that he delivered in 1983 to the National Association of Evangelicals, in which he clearly was calling them to task for potentially doing the devil's work in the moral equivocation between the United States of America and the Soviet Union. They're evil, we're good. We win, they lose. That's the plan, okay? You guys not clear on that? If you're not clear on that, maybe Satan's been working overtime. Maybe Screwtape, Uncle Screwtape has been working overtime on you. Just saying. But I think this is part of where Christian leaders, Christian thought leaders, Christian authors, Christian pastors, denominations and institutions have gone astray and have become, I'm sad to say, blind guides in too many cases is because they think that they're arriving at the truth and embodying humility by dialogue with one another and with the outside world. And they call that relevance and they call that unity and they call that having a good testimony. And therefore, they can't call good and evil anything unless it is opposed to that core value, which is to say, if you have somebody coming forward like a Reagan and saying, we win, they lose. Very few things, if anything, makes more uncomfortable the person who believes we arrive at truth and goodness and beauty through dialogue with one another first and foremost. 
than if you start saying, you're a snake, you're a wolf, you are a hypocrite, you are a whitewashed tomb, you are a son of Satan, you are evil, you are corrupt, God will not be mocked, you are going to reap what you sow. You start saying that, and boy howdy, does that cause the conversation to break down quickly. I think I mentioned recently that I went to a legislative briefing that Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, RMGO, put on in Loveland, Colorado. I went with a couple of guys from church, and we listened as Dudley Brown and his associate, Taylor, I can't remember his last name. I don't remember his last name. I'm feeling glad that I even remembered his first name. But as these two were explaining some of the legislative hurdles and challenges to the Second Amendment, to the right to keep and bear arms, uh, what they are in the state of Colorado, what's going to probably be the case as far as them being passed by Democrats who want to take your guns. They do want to take your guns so they can institute communism. Let's be clear. Communists are real. Communism is a thing. It's been tried. This is one of the precursors. (laughs) It's one of the features. It's not a bug of communism that they start taking people's guns away before they take all the rest of their rights and property away. And oh, by the way, going back to Isaiah 58, what are you doing? You know, if you are delivering somebody from oppression, if that's the kind of fast that God chooses to loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. What do you do when the person being oppressed needs to be reasoned with a bit and they need to be talked into it? What do you do when the person being oppressed is being oppressed by somebody who's not you? It's not just you who's deciding, okay, I'm not going to oppress you anymore. You can go now. You do what Moses and Aaron do by God's command. You go to Pharaoh and you say, let my people go, even if you don't expect them to. You let God figure that piece out, what the consequences are going to be. You deliver the message. You're just the messenger here. But I think the Hegelian dialectic would jump at the chance to negotiate with Pharaoh. Hey, let's be realistic here right? He's saying the men can go. Isn't isn't that enough? No, it's not enough. All of the people, the women and the children as well. Okay, but your livestock have to stay, right? Let's make a deal. No, no, the livestock need to go as well. Let God's people go. And actually, you know what? Not only let them take everything that belongs to them with them when they go, you guys, you really should give them gold and silver jewelry and articles. Wait a second. What kind of a negotiation is this? <laughs> negotiation with plagues, if you will. God drives a hard bargain. Might want to take that deal. The Hegelian dialectic model, I think, breaks down very quickly when you're dealing with sinful people who can, as Romans 1 says, have a hostile reaction to truth. They don't want to know the truth. In fact, they're liars. If they're of their father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning, they are liars and you shouldn't be surprised. And you shouldn't be offended at the idea that that's a category, that people are not inherently good, all wanting good things. No, some people are corrupt and they want bad things. And they don't care if they do bad things to get what they want. They want bad things for you so that they can get you out of the way, so that they can get what they want, because they are bad people. There are bad people 
Actually, there's a lot of them. See also Time Magazine's Person of the Year list. I think that's where we so often are at, is being fish in water who don't realize we're wet. We have been marinating for a century at least, really two, three centuries, if you want to think bigger picture about the Enlightenment, secular humanism, rationalism. Not that it's bad to be reasonable, but it is bad to elevate man's reason to the point that God's word has no effect. That is definitionally being wise in your own eyes. Your foolish heart will be darkened. You will fall prey and victim to exactly what Time Magazine has, where you you trumpet the biggest mass murderers in world history. You know, their recent picks, I think, are somewhat rich here. 2022, The Spirit of Ukraine and Volodymyr Zelensky. 2021, Elon Musk. That was, he was a pretty good pick, I think. I'm good with that one. 2020, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. 2019, Greta Thunberg. You could say, well, 2016, Donald Trump. He was person of the year. Yeah, sure. Great. But what is this about? These are just the most influential people that year. Come on, man. This is celebratory. And they have celebrated people who were the worst because people are not inherently good. There are bad people. Only God is good. Why do you call me good? Jesus asks when somebody says, good teacher. Why do you call me good? Only God is good, actually. Moving on. Peter Heck. What the heck? Peter Heck over at Not The Bee has a post up from this morning. Are we the baddies? Pro-choicers begin turning on the pro-aborts. I'll put a link in, but he draws attention to, on the side of the political aisle here in the U.S., those folks who want abortion to be legal. They want it to be codified into federal statute. They want to codify Roe v. Wade with the Supreme Court having overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. They are incensed that they would be told, no, that's murder. You cannot. And I think far too many Christians hear the arguments made by pro-choice, pro-abortion advocates, and even the mushy pro-lifers. Pro-life is pretty mushy. How about abolitionists? There's an idea. Abolish human abortion. Make murdering infants illegal again. Shedding innocent blood makes the short list of things that are abominable to God that he detests. What do you suppose is going to happen to our country with the legalization and writing it into the legal code, federal legal code? What do you think would happen to our nation if we said we are absolutely insisting that abortion be legal and even subsidized nationally? A tweet by a Katie McHugh, MD, she, her, is highlighted by Peter Heck over at Not The Bee. She says, happy Friday. Hashtag abortion care is still legal in Indiana. We're doing everything we can to keep it that way. Hashtag abortion is healthcare as well as a community priority, a family value, and a normal part of life. Abortion is moral common and it isn't going away. Neither are we. Heart face. She has a picture of herself, a selfie presumably in her doctor's office holding some kind of an instrument that I can't identify, but I have a sinking feeling that that is an instrument for removing 
a uh, aborted baby from his or her mother's womb. She has this big smile on her face and it's extraordinarily creepy. And do you know what? She thinks she's a good person. If she's performing abortions, she's not a good person. She's a murderer. She's not a good person. And we don't figure out what is good by having a negotiation and compromising back and forth with her. No, no. No, the truth is not somewhere in the middle. Or what would we say? We say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect either. I want zero abortions. She wants not safe, legal, and rare. Actually, she wants it safe for the mother and the abortion provider, legal, and every day, all the time, whenever, the more the merrier. And actually, Peter Heck points out something. It's a great, great point. He says, you know, why is it that the people who are promoting abortion, why is it that they say safe, legal, and rare if abortion is no big deal? Why rare? Why, why does it need to be rare if it's good? If it's good, then, I mean, shouldn't we want as much abortion as possible? There's something of a tell there. Like, you know that this is wrong. And you say, let's make it rare, safe, legal, and rare because you know you shouldn't be doing it at all. But if it should be rare, then it should be abolished because it's murder. It's either murder or it isn't murder. And you can't say there's one set of rules if the mother wants the baby and there's another set of rules if the mother doesn't want the baby. You can't do that. You know, my cousin Micah asked me a question last night, which I need to get back with him on this question this morning. He says, you know, why is it, you know, if I put a pizza in the oven to bake it, that pizza does not become part of the oven. We don't think that way. We don't talk that way. If I go to the grocery store and I come home with a gallon of milk and I put that in the fridge, that gallon of milk does not become part of the fridge. So why is it that when a woman becomes pregnant, why is it that we say that that's her body, her choice? Why is anybody allowed to say that? It's not her body. It's in her body, but that's not the same thing. Not by half. What do we do in the case of a pizza in an oven? Do we ask the oven, hey, do I have permission? No. You say, whose oven is it? Okay. Whoever's oven is it gets to decide whether they are putting a pizza in the oven. Whoever's fridge that is, they get to decide whether they're putting a gallon of milk in there and when they take it out. Who are we supposed to regard ourselves as belonging to? Ourselves? Or if we're married, we belong to one another. I belong to my wife. My wife belongs to me. And if we're Christians, we belong to God. So actually, my body, my choice fails because the big question is, does God want that there? Does God want this? Does he want that? Who are we seeking the approval of? Are we seeking God's approval? Are we seeking man's approval? It comes back to that again and again and again and again. Now, it's interesting to me, another tweet that's highlighted here by Peter Heck, Maud Marone. She says, I'm pro-choice, not pro-abortion a distinction I never felt the need to make until this recent, and yes, creepy, Democrat lefty embrace of abortion. She is replying to a gal named Storm, I think, Storm Robinson. Maybe it's a guy. Either way, I'm largely pro-choice, but I question if I'm on the right side of the argument when I see providers get excited to perform abortions. This is a very, very creepy post. And Storm is replying there to Katie McHugh, MD, with a big smile. And the tool, whatever this tool does, 
Yes, it's creepy because it's evil. That uncomfortable feeling you have, it's because this is wrong. This is evil. This is corrupt. It should make you uncomfortable because it's bad. And this person is bad. And we need to be able to make value judgments like that and not suppose that everything comes back in the end to us just dialoguing about it back and forth. No, I don't want to negotiate with a serial killer. I say I want them to murder zero people, and they say they want to murder 100 people, and we find that the truth is somewhere in between. How about let's settle on 50, okay? 50 people I don't like. Does that work? Does that work for you? Deal. Okay, now we know that it's good because we agreed on it, right? No. Wrong. There are categories of true and false. There are categories of right and wrong, good and evil. And you need to line up on the side of the true and the good and the beautiful. And if you're not, then you're part of the problem. And it's possible for Christians to do that and all the while be totally confused, absolutely confused at being told, no, God's not pleased by that. Uh Uh-uh, not so fast, not so fast. What do you mean he's not pleased by this? I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm fasting. We read about in Isaiah 58. What do you mean? What do you mean God's not pleased by this? What do you mean he's not going to accept my offering? See also Cain in the book of Genesis. Angry that God rejects his sacrifice, his offering, and accepts righteous Abel's. What do you mean? I did exactly what I was supposed to do. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. And right now, the fact that you're getting all upset might be an indication that your heart has been in the wrong place. You are seeking your own pleasure first and foremost. And when confronted, when corrected, you're doubling down. You're incensed. You're angry at God for having rejected and not rewarded or blessed. And you're angry at the person who's offering or fast or argument is acceptable and pleasing to God. These are categories. These are biblical categories. Acceptable and unacceptable. Chosen, rejected. Rewarded, punished. These are categories. And we have forgotten them. And I'm going to play a short clip here before we get into talking about January 6th. This is a short clip from Instagram that my wife sent me just last night. I can't introduce it. I'm just going to have to play it. Here is cut one for why we need to rediscover these categories. Take a listen. Good you attend chapel at Duke Divinity and, and hear this. Be with you. Good morning and welcome to worship. We at Divinity Pride want to create a worship space that honors and celebrates all of our unique and good identities. We want to affirm everyone to be who they truly are to step into the Holy One's fire that burns away all that says we are not good enough and refines us by the Pentecostal fire to be who exactly the great queer one calls us to be. Strange one, fabulous one, fluid and ever becoming one, do not allow us to make our ideas of you into an idol. You are as close to us as our own breath, and yet your essence transcends all that we can imagine. And cut. (laughs) Uh, Duke Divinity is a school. It's a university, Duke University, seminary in Durham, 
North Carolina. One of 10 graduate or professional schools within Duke University, according to Wikipedia. Also one of the 13 seminaries founded and supported by the United Methodist Church. That's a false gospel. That is not Christianity. We will not arrive at a truer and better and holier and more godly Christianity by sitting down for dialogue with this gal and compromising. She needs to be corrected. She needs to be rebuked. She needs to be instructed. She does not need to be leading the prayer to the great queer one who loves us just the way that we are and doesn't want us to change a thing, who only wants us to repent of being called to repentance and being told that we are sinners in need of a savior. You don't need a savior if you are good enough. All of Christianity is based on the premise that we are not good enough and we need salvation. We need to be saved from our sins, our sins. We need to be sanctified. We need to be made holy as he is holy. This is a false gospel. This is satanic. And this is where if we have our priorities reversed and we're seeking the approval of man first and foremost, not the approval of God, this is where we are not just in trouble from a practical, pragmatic sense. We are hellbound. This is unholy. This is wicked. This is depraved. This is bound for judgment unless there is a correction and a rebuke. And we have to be clear on that. Now, let's move on. From that, from recognizing that the temperature in the room needs to change for Christians, it needs to change for seminaries, it needs to change for churches, With regards to this kind of material, we have to be able to pronounce judgment. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Paul writes to the church at Corinth, how much more so matters pertaining to this life? Navigating over to the Daily Wire. Daily Wire News posted yesterday, Kevin McCarthy defends releasing January 6th tapes, torches CNN reporter to their face. Now you can put a little bit of an asterisk on whether we should be torching people to their face. (laughs) we got all these fire analogies, straight fire, flaming. Set that aside for a moment. We'll get to that someday. I'm going to play another clip. This will be clip two. Jack Posobiec tweeting out, McCarthy defends Tucker release of J6 tapes, slams CNN. Take a listen. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker. Because of the footage that you gave Tucker Carlson last night, he went on and said this was a mostly peaceful chaos, as he said. He downplayed Brian Sicknick's death, said it was not related to January 6th, that this was not an insurrection. Do you regret giving him this footage so he could whitewash the events of that day? No. Um, I, I said at the very beginning, transparency. And so what I wanted to produce for everybody is exactly what I said, that people could actually look at it and see what's gone on that day. So. But why, for, but why, for Mr. Speaker, Look, each person come up with their own conclusion, but I, what I just wanted to make sure is I had transparency. Do you believe because I know in CNN, I mean, I had here, where you guys actually broke where we were, this was a secret location, Fort McLaren. I don't know if you got concerned by that. I don't even know from, uh, point of view of security, if we could ever be taken there again. But when you broke that at CNN, that was a real concern to a lot of people. I had a real concern also when I wanted to make sure transparency looked. Um, the officer's death is tragic, and uh, any time an officer is passed uh, in this situation, 
uh, I want to make sure they're protected. I want to make sure the transparency is goes forward. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. McCarthy, was this in any way part of the deal that you made to no, win the speakership no. to specifically give the content to? No, the, to answer, talk? the answer is no. And if uh, if you follow, I'm not sure if you were there the times before. I got asked the question um, in a press. What I would do in the process. I watched on January 6th committee how it was only politically driven. Now on the January 6th committee, you couldn't have the, the minority side wasn't allowed to put people on. Um, and I just thought it was fair if someone asked me the question. Just transparency. So what I tried to do is be able to release the information, which we'll do to everybody. I worked with the Capitol Police. I asked them for any clips on the way that they had concern with the security level. Only one of the clips did, and we were able to change that. An interesting thing the Capitol Police told us when we went through this is that January 6th never asked them about that, the security. So that's why they showed, unfortunately, President, uh, Vice President Pence when he was uh, being escorted out. They used my office on the escort of where he went out. They never asked the Capitol Police if that's showing security clearance that they shouldn't, which they didn't. They didn't ask me as well. Okay, so here again, some will say, well, this is just very stressful, and why do we have to go into all this, and what's the benefit? And I would say, remember what hay politically, socially, culturally has been made over the last two years regarding what happened on January 6th, what happened leading up to it, and what happened on January 6th. And what has been the outcome of the narrative that's been presented by the mainstream media, by Democrats, by moderate Republicans, like Kinzinger, like Cheney, what has been the outcome? It has been to malign conservative Americans, people who voted for Donald Trump, who had concerns about election fraud, who went to the Capitol on January 6th, to malign all of the above as insurrectionists, lawless anarchists as a threat to our democracy. Consider that. Now, listen to the response from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer when he is talking about what has been released so far and whether Tucker Carlson should be allowed to reveal any more. Take a listen. Here's cut three. These lies continue tonight. Rupert Murdoch who has admitted they were lies and said he regretted it, has a special obligation to stop Tucker Carlson from going on tonight now that he's seen how he has perverted and slimed the truth and from letting him go on again and again and again. Not because their views deserve such a proprium, but because our democracy depends on it. Okay, so cut. Not because their views deserve such opprobrium, but because our democracy depends on it. What is opprobrium? Harsh criticism or censure. So that is to say, it would seem, that you're not calling for a general censoring of the views that Tucker Carlson is communicating, but our democracy depends on Rupert Murdoch preventing Tucker Carlson from going on the air with these tapes with the footage that has been given to him by Kevin McCarthy. In other words, we have Chuck Schumer publicly calling on Rupert Murdoch to stop Tucker Carlson releasing January 6th 
footage because our democracy depends on it. Some word games are being played here. This is disingenuous. This is dishonest. What is being called for is censorship of footage that completely changes the narrative on January 6th. When you see the so-called QAnon shaman being escorted through the Capitol building by Capitol Police being taken to the chamber for his photo op so that we can say all the people who came to Washington, D.C. concerned about the integrity of the 2020 election are this guy, crazy, eccentric, dangerous. When you see Capitol Police escorting him through the building, that changes the narrative. When you see Ray Epps in the crowd agitating after the time that he texted his nephew to say he orchestrated the whole thing, when you see him not being charged, but coming and testifying to the January 6th committee that he went back to his hotel. when he, you know, Before he texted his nephew that, he went back to his hotel. No, he didn't. It's on the footage. It's on the video that Kevin McCarthy gave to Tucker Carlson. The truth matters because roughly half of the United States of America has been maligned, derided, mocked, vilified, marginalized, disenfranchised, therefore, and will continue on being so marginalized. The other half of the country, roughly, has been lied to and told to hate the half of the country that has been falsely accused, that has had false witness born against them. Chuck Schumer says our democracy depends on it. No, no. Your approach to democracy, your Democrat Party platform might depend on it, but the democratic elements that were baked into our form of government don't depend on the American people being kept in the dark about the lie that was told, the false accusations, the, <laughs> the commandment of God that was violated and broken and disobeyed when you bore false witness against your neighbors. What's at stake here is actual justice. For all the social justice warriors out there, this is your time to shine. Pursue God's justice. He's shown you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, Micah 6, 8? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. If you don't see this as an injustice, that half of your countrymen here in the United States of America have been maligned and slandered day in, day out for years and even decades, if you don't see that as a matter of justice and injustice, then you actually don't really care about justice. You care about virtue signaling. And it's very similar to Isaiah 58. Even if you consider yourself a Christian and you're fasting, that's no guarantee that you are fasting in a way that pleases God. If you're not doing it in the way that Jesus says in Matthew 6, then you're not fasting so as to get a reward from God. And if your pursuit of justice is as public as it possibly can be, but it's not motivated by the kind of justice that pleases God, then you're not actually interested in justice first and foremost, and you will get your reward in this life. You will not be hearing, well done, good and faithful servant from the God you're ignoring and disobeying. This is where the rubber meets the road. And the dialogue we need to have is only possible if the facts of the case are allowed to see the light of day. How would it be if 
in the trial of an individual man, the prosecutor didn't have to make the evidence available to the defense attorneys. We, we would say that that is a show trial. We would say that's a kangaroo court. We would say that is not due process. We would say that that is a miscarriage of justice. Does it change when it's half the country versus one man? When Democrats are trying to marginalize and slander and malign and oppress, really truly, disenfranchise, really truly, half the country, does that change the need for due process and for the evidence to be presented or else the claims to cease their animus? This is very, very important. The truth is not somewhere in the middle. But if you have individuals behaving badly and that's caught on tape, hold those individuals accountable. If they really thought they were doing the right thing and this was for the good of the country, but they were doing the wrong thing, hold them accountable. And that goes for protesters, that goes for rioters, that goes for public officials, that goes for law enforcement, that goes for FBI agents, potentially, that goes for Congress people and their staff, all parties concerned here. Or else, instead of Lex Rex, we have Rex Lex. I am the state is the kind of sentiment being communicated by Chuck Schumer. I am the state. I am democracy. <laughs> no, you're not. Last I checked, we are the demos. And you can't have a democracy without the demos. You are not democracy, Chuck Schumer. The Democrat Party is not democracy. Time magazine can say their person of the year is Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Benito Mussolini. And what do we say? Well, in the interest of journalism, right, to protect our fourth estate, the mainstream media, the news media, we need to not show footage from concentration camps and from firing squads and from labor camps and gulags. We need to not talk about the atrocities committed under fascism in Italy or Nazism in Germany or communism in the Soviet Union. No, that's absurd. That's absurd. So also here, it's as absurd to say that our democracy is being threatened if the Democrats look bad as it would be to say that time itself is being threatened if Time magazine has egg on its face for who its person of the year has been in decades past. That's about as much sense as this makes. No, time is a thing. You named your magazine time. That doesn't mean that you are time. The Democrat Party is not democracy itself. They need to be reminded of that. The demos, we, the people, need to remind them of that. We need to insist that a full accounting is given and assessed and that there are consequences, not just for people who voted for Trump, not just for people who believe that there was widespread meaningful, significant fraud in the 2020 election. And oh, by the way, if the same people were telling you there was no fraud in the 2020 election are also the same people who were telling you what the narrative should be on January 6th, and this is what we have to explode that narrative, just even a little bit so far is all it's taken to explode the narrative, then do you trust them on their assurances that the 2020 election was above board? I suppose they would say election fraud was safe, legal, and rare or something. It wasn't. It wasn't. I don't think. 
there is a need for us to recognize and abide by the categories of good and evil, true and false, beautiful and ugly for God's glory. Seek God's approval first and foremost. Subsequently, you'll know when and whether you want man's approval. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.